This yes. is hell. Live from the United States, where capitalism is the virus, this is hell. And when the virus hit, it sure did a number on capitalism. As today's guest describes at the beginning of the pandemic, suddenly closed restaurants meant tons of food that could not be served to customers. It needed to be destroyed, despite the fact that capitalism's promises of supply and demand would suggest, would insist that there was plenty of places that for that food to go and be put to good use, feeding people as mutual aid groups were demanding food for those who desperately needed it at, in the early stages of the pandemic. But in reality, that's not how the world works. In reality, if there is no money to be made, then you might as well destroy whatever supply you have, as human needs and demands mean nothing if it is not backed up with profits. We've talked with many guests on the show about the problems of constant and continued economic growth. For years, we've had discussions with those who promote degrowth as an alternative and a potential way to address climate change. But one thing has always been missing from those conversations, and that is overproduction. That the market, that capitalism depends upon producing too much that it depends upon the production of waste, which cannot be good during a time when we are already seeing the disastrous impact of climate change. So in a few minutes, we'll try to figure out this whole nightmare when we speak with Trevor Jackson, who wrote the Baffler magazine article, Overproduction and Its Discontents, Capitalism's Inherent Predilection for Excess. But wait, there's more. Trevor's most recent writing is the New York Review of Books piece, The Price of Crypto. Despite its boosters' frequent, frequent references to democracy and freedom, cryptocurrency reflects a radical marketization of politics in which major players can rewrite the rules as needed. Yes, unbelievably, crypto is even worse than we imagined. Sure, we knew what a suck it was on the global energy grid and how much it cranks cl climate change up to unprecedented levels. But did you know the whole idea behind crypto was to overthrow democracy and give power to the wealthiest as the world would be run on a vote with your dollar type of system, which gives all of the power to the wealthiest? That the whole idea was essentially a coup to have capitalism finally end democracy, which is what its major backers and funders always wanted? Yeah, me neither. So we are starting this week with capitalism depending upon waste, which is destroying the planet, in an attempt by the wealthy to overthrow democracy. And we'll be discussing all that with Trevor, who is an ass uh, assistant professor of economic history and economic historian himself at George Washington University. His first book, Impunity and Capitalism, The Afterlives of European Financial Crises, 1690 to 1830, is out now from Cambridge University Press. It examines how changes in the scope for prosecutorial discretion, technical complexity, and the international mobility of capital diffused the capital capacity to act with impunity in the economy across the very long 18th century. The project argues that impunity has shifted from the sole possession of a legally immune sovereign to a functional characteristic of technically skilled professional managers of capital, to an imagined quality of markets themselves such that an 
constituent element of the modern economic sphere is that within it, great harm can and will happen to great many people, and nobody will be at fault. Dr. Jackson, Jackson has taught courses on international economic history ranging from the early modern period to the 20th century, as well as courses on capitalism and inequality, the history of economic crisis, and the history of human rights. Prior to joining the faculty at the George Washington University, he lectured at the University of California, Berkeley. Producing today's show is Will Ippen. I am your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show podcast host, live streaming host Chuck Mertz. Will, how was your weekend? It was all right. It was a long weekend or long day of gardening on Saturday. Uh, it kind of, the day got away from me and before I knew it, I had been out there for like six hours. And, Were you burning? Uh, surprisingly, no. I think there was enough dust blowing around from the <laughs> lack of uh, rainfall and I had my hair down and I was looking down so I think my arms got a little torched but that's about it sweet so how much how many hours were you out there working uh probably it was six on Saturday and like two on Friday Jesus I was thinking about dropping by and I was just like there's no way you'd be around but probably you would have been I I, the I had my whole secondary bed to prep so there was a lot of digging and grass had established in there which is really kind of terrible work weeding grass out of a four by eight uh, garden oh, bed Jesus. <laughs> yeah that does not sound like fun yeah, it was it was fun in its own way only because i uh i don't get enough exercise these days and yeah. getting back to nature right exactly so since the last time we spoke a lot has happened about and around the radio show first during our weekly meet and greet that's really a think and drink or drink and think. This is how office hours, which happen every Wednesday evening at the bar downstairs from Miss Carrie's Lounge, which is located at 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's Westridge neighborhood. Every so often, weird things happen during office hours, like listeners dropping by from Portland, Oregon, Portland, Maine, Rapid City, South Dakota, St. Louis, Milwaukee, Detroit, Jackson, Mississippi, even Hamilton, Ontario, or Glasgow, Scotland. Every so often, people from all over the place will just drop by and hang out with us. Last week, it was past guest and contributor Flint Taylor, who was part of the legal team that reached a record settlement with the Chicago Police Department in the killing of Black Panther leader Fred Hampton. He was also a part of the team that took down torturer John Burge, who was a police officer here in Chicago that terrorized the city for decades. Flint dropped by unexpectedly and unannounced, which was awesome, and he gave us several autographed copies of his book, The Torture Machine, Racism and Police Violence in Chicago. Flint said we can do with them what we please, including giving them out as raffle prizes during our upcoming This Is Hell anniversary and listener appreciation party, which is happening on Saturday, July 22nd, beginning at 3 p.m. again at the bars, the bar downstairs from us where I'm sitting right now, Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue. But there's only three of the original eight copies left because here's the thing, it was the birthday of a semi-regular at Carrie's, but whenever he does actually hang out at Carrie's, it's always during office hours. So we gave him a copy as it was his birthday. Then a friend of his dropped by to celebrate his birthday, and the birthday boy's friend recognized Flint Taylor because decades earlier, this friend of the birthday boy was a jury member at a police violence trial where Flint was defending the victim of law enforcement abuse. And he was like, I could never forget this guy. I've been staring at him for, I stared at him for weeks in a courtroom. 
So I asked Flint, I was like, do you remember him? And he was like, Chuck, I have been in front of thousands of jurors. Hell no, I don't remember him. So we gave the birthday boy's friend a copy because he had been in a jury where Flint uh, Taylor was presiding. Uh, And then a mutual friend of the two also knew about Flint, so we gave her a copy for taking pictures of the other two with Flint and copies of his book. Then Ronaldo Magaldi, who does Rotten History, showed up with his girlfriend who works in the Bundestag in uh, Germany's parliament. So we gave a copy to Ronaldo, and we gave another copy away to a listener, so now we have like only three of these copies left. But we will be giving one away during this week's office hours to the first person who asks. They will get a free copy, autographed copy, of Flint Taylor's book, The Torture Machine. And then on Thursday, we got some cool stuff from the fine printers at Kelly, Kelly, Kennedy Prince in Detroit. And we'll tell you more about that in a bit. Then I went to a friend's garage sale, and he donated a rug to the space up here. But it's not just any rug. It's a rug from Afghanistan with the words like... Afghanistan and Pakistan and airplane misspelled while having images of tanks and helicopters and a war scene. Then as I was walking from my friend's garage sale, my uh, girlfriend and I stumbled across an odd building on Rosemont and the alley one block south of Uncommon Ground, if you're familiar with the neighborhood. And as we were discussing what the hell is that building, we realized someone was sitting on the front porch grilling and we asked what the building was originally, and he told us it was the Edgewater Dairy, the only dairy ever in the Edgewater neighborhood, which is the lakefront community just east of where I'm sitting right now, the neighborhood between us and Lake Michigan. Then we had friends over and celebrated the first summer hangout on our back deck, which was fantastic, and we got even more stuff from Kennedy Prince in the mail, as well as a copy of uh, this Wednesday's guest's book, which we will also be giving away to the first person who asks about it during This Is Hell's uh, weekly office hours. So a lot of show-related and just weird stuff happened since the last time we spoke, but more important than any and all of that, Will, what is this week's question from hell for our listeners? This week's question from hell is, what's a priority in your budget that needs to be cut? What's a priority in your budget that needs to be cut? You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio, or you can tweet it at us at thisishellradio, or you can email it to us at chuck at thisishell.com. We will be announcing this week's winner as we do each and every week at the end of this week's set of shows following Jeff Dorchin and the moment of truth. Special thanks this week goes out to A.P. Kennedy and all of the wonderful people at Detroit's Kennedy Prince for their very, very generous support for This Is Hell. We'll tell you more about that in a moment. Jeff, uh, or sorry, Jeff. Will, what is Jeff talking about during this week's Moment of Truth? Jeff cleans up after the dog man. (laughs) Gross. Brave enough to be streaming live, dumb enough to be goofy, stupid enough to think that we could be a regular part of your weekly hangover. This is Hell, and Will has this week's Hangover Cure. This week's Hangover Cure is uncertain. In December, the Washington Post's Eating Lab section ran a story in the headline, How to Cure or Prevent a Hangover. Now we're leaving the British Isles for this. Yeah, we are. Isn't that crazy? Except we're not. (laughs) The Post reports, recently a team of British researchers scoured the medical literature to find rigorous clinical trials that put a variety of hangover cures to the test. The researchers found seven 
products showed some limited evidence of being able to reduce hangover symptoms when compared to placebos. Among them were supplements made with clove extract, the anti-inflammatory drug uh, tolfenamic acid, uh, a form of vitamin B6 called uh, pyritinol, herbal supplements containing extracts of hovinia dulcis, also known as the Japanese raisin tree, <laughs> products containing the amino acid L-cysteine, and finally, Korean pear juice and red ginseng. The study the post cites is titled The Efficacy and Tolerability of Pharmacologically Active Interventions for Alcohol-Induced Hangover Symptomatology. Soon to be made into a movie. Yes. <laughs> a symptom, we're not finished. Colon, a symptomatic review <laughs> of the evidence from randomized placebo-controlled trials. So there you have it. There you go. No question about what the article's about. <laughs> that study found that, quote, only low-quality evidence of efficacy is available to recommend any pharmacologically active intervention for the treatment or prevention of alcohol-induced hangover. Of the limited interventions studied, all had favorable tolerability profiles and very low-quality evidence. Um, suggests clove extract, tolfenamic acid, and pyritinol may most warrant further study. That makes this week's hangover cure maybe clove extract or possibly the anti-inflammatory drug tolfamatic acid or a form of vitamin B6 called pyritinol. However, further testing will be needed. Like I was saying, we received some very kind support from the good people at Kennedy Prince in the McDougal Hunt neighborhood in Detroit. Printers who do absolutely stunning work, and they have been very kind to send us many prints with famous quotes from liberation leaders to phrases like, God is trans, or here's a quote from Henry Ward Beecher, where is human nature so weak as in the bookstore? Or Upton Sinclair's famous quote, it is difficult to get a man to understand something when his salary depends upon his not understanding it. So we've been getting these prints, and uh, if you were at our anniversary and listener appreciation party and art show last year, you may have seen the prints framed and hanging in the stairwell, or maybe you won a Kennedy print during last year's raffle, and this year we will again have works by the amazing printers at Kennedy uh, Prints as raffle prizes. So we got like 100 prints this week that say, God's favorite podcast, prove us wrong. This is hell, and we received a letter from A.P. Kennedy as well. Let me read it real quickly before we can get to Trevor. He writes, hi, Chuck and the crew. I've been writing this letter for the last four months, and every time I hear the show, I want to change the letter. I'm determined to mail this letter today. Well, maybe tomorrow. This is a long letter, so hopefully not too long to read on the show. First shout out to Mimi Machete. Glad to hear that your recovery is continuing in a positive direction and hopefully your upcoming surgery will go smoothly. Whenever I hear your medical monologues concerning your health, I admire your ability to deal with your medical problem and keep the show going with the help of the show's past and present excellent producers. I'm going to miss some of the producers that have left the show recently. They were all great. I love the new producers. You had some very interesting interviews uh, that really gave me hope in February and March of this year. The interviews were very uplifting. After listening to The Green Growth Delusion with Christopher Ketchum, you have returned to the fold, back to This Is Hell. I use a rake and my good neighbors are always offering to loan me their leaf blower. 
I am no fool to believe that using a rake will save the environment, but it is sad to believe that banning gas leaf blowers will save the environment. Furthermore, I rarely hear degrowth viewpoints anywhere except this is hell, but the green growth delusion is everywhere on the media. Even my brother believes it. If I do hear any interviews about degrowth on other media outlets, the interviewee is attacked ferociously as being out of step with reality. We are destroying the environment that gives us life, but the earth, the planet, will be fine with or without humans. In a show discussing drug companies' stock buybacks about four months ago, you asked a question referring to the public health care system. The correct answer should have been, there is no public health care system in the United States of America. The United States of America only has a profit health care system designed to make profits not improve the health of the population. It functions uh, at, it, it functions very well to make profits. The profit care system does improve the health of some individuals in the population, but does not improve health of the whole population. I'm humbly recommending the following authors to the show's uh, Patreon members to see if the Patreon members feel any of the following authors should be invited to the show. Sorry for the long list, but this was a work in process over the last six months. He then sends us a very long list of uh, possible guests on the show. One that was really interesting is an article by Rob Yuri uh, at robyuri.substack.com that says more people have died from the failures of Obamacare than from COVID-19. So... Thank you very much, AP. We truly appreciate all of the wonderful support. We will have more from Kennedy Prince following our guest because they have also donated something very special to the raffle that will be taking place this year during the This Is Hell Anniversary and Listener Appreciation Party and Art Show. If you have something hellish that you would like to donate to the raffle, email me at chuck at thisishell.com and tell us what it is. We'll go from there. Coming up, overproduction is killing the planet. And so is cryptocurrency, which is also trying to overthrow democracy and replace it with oligarchy. Will has some of your answers to this week's question from hell. We'll tell you what happened during last week's Patreon podcast exclusively for subscribers at patreon.com slash this is hell. Also, we have the return of Dr. Sebastian Vupper and the past inside the pre present when Sebastian, a historian by trade, gives us his historical context of the past that we need to have a better understanding of our present. Behind every great fortune lies a great crime, because this is hell. And the crime we are talking about today that fuels fortunes is waste, as in unnecessary overproduction. But within the system we find ourselves today, that unnecessary overproduction, that waste, is very necessary to generate profits. That right, that's right, the wasteful production and consumption, overconsumption, we are told to rein in if we want to address climate change. That waste is... Sadly, good for business. And if you thought that was bad, wait until you learned that cryptocurrency was always about overthrowing democracy. Here to help us understand why we overproduce and waste so much and what crypto was all about joining us is economic historian Trevor Jackson, who wrote the Baffler Magazine article, Overproduction and Its Discontents, as well as the New York Review of Books piece, The Price of Crypto. Welcome to This Is Hell, Trevor. Well, thank you for having me. Thank you so much for being on our show. I really appreciate it. Uh, you write that everyone recalls the shortages of toilet paper and pasta, but the early period of the pandemic was also a time of gluts, with restaurants and school cafeterias shuttered, farmers in Florida destroyed millions of pounds of tomatoes, cabbages, and green beans. After meatpacking plants began closing, farmers in Minnesota and Iowa 
authorized hundreds of thousands of hogs to avoid uh, the euthanization of hundreds of thousands of hogs to avoid overcrowding across the country from Ohio to California. Dairies poured out millions of gallons of milk and uh, poultry farms smashed millions of eggs. You add the supply chain disruptions continue to this day. Why do they continue to this day? If this is what was happening during the earliest weeks of the pandemic when uh, supply chains are being stretched the most, why is why are these still continuing if, as everybody's telling me, the pandemic's over? Well, the easy answer to that is that they also preceded the pandemic, that these kinds of dislocations between what's produced, where it's produced, and where ultimately it's supposed to be marketed are things that go back to uh, I mean, the origins of capitalism in the 17th century. Uh, and so I used these examples from the early pandemic because I'm relatively confident that all readers and listeners will remember the pandemic in a way that they may not realize that in the past year, there's been a glut in natural gas in northern India. There's been a glut in Thai rice production. There's been a glut in Santa Barbara cannabis. You may not know those things, um, but you definitely remember the early stages of the pandemic. You remember the toilet paper and pasta shortages. Uh, so, you know, these things are still going because that's business as usual. It's not an artifact of the pandemic specifically. The pandemic just revealed, you know, in so many ways, the underlying kind of injustices, inefficiencies, and cruelties that are constitutive of, you know, late capitalist modernity. But those revelations seem to have been completely ignored. To you, what explains? You know, the revelations, people finally, you know, having the fog uh, wiped away from their eyes and able to see the reality of what capitalism does for us and the desire to run back to a normalcy where that was denied. Mm -hmm. Well, I think part of the greater willingness to recognize and discuss what we might call kind of inherent contradictions in capitalism I think results on the one hand from a, a kind of wider language that we're used to talking about it that we can probably trace to the political changes since 2016 that particularly young people are more willing to like talk about capitalism as a specific system rather than say the economy the market uh, which i think would have been more normal in the 90s i think it helps that the memory of the soviet union and the cold war has gotten distant enough that uh, these kind of conversations don't immediately go down those same lines. Uh, you know, so I think that that opens up some space and some language to to talk about these things. But I don't think that we yet have arrived at a real consensus of what we mean when we're having these conversations and what examples we use, what kinds of implications they have. You know, these, these are only just beginning after a very long stretch of uh intellectual and political stagnation around thinking about these big questions. And so also for that reason, I think that makes many people uncomfortable with having these kind of conversations. I'm not sure that I'm very optimistic that the the scales have fallen from many eyes and many people are seeing more clearly, perhaps some, but um, part of why I wanted to write the piece was that I don't have the sense that uh, there's much coherence around the idea that there might be a systemic problem with overproduction rather than, you know, a series of blips. You know, if you have enough blips, you don't have blips, you have a pulse, you have a signal. Um, and I, I didn't think that, although there are many, many news stories 
that recognize the existence of, say, one particular glut, one particular crisis, one particular overproduction that that wasn't cohering into any kind of synthetic uh, recognition that there might be some sort of systemic problem. You also write that supply chain disruptions continue. Uh, is this a disruption of globalization? Whenever we hear problems with the supply chain due to the pandemic or for whatever reason, you know, is that globalization failing? If so, how tenuous is globalization considering what has happened to it during the earliest stages of the pandemic and continuing to, day, to this day? I mean, is this more uh, uh, more than the precarious nature of just-in-time inventory management. Is this just the precarious and tenuous nature of capitalism in general, that it's not as stable and secure as people would hope or believe? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think I think more the latter. Um, I mean, I am somebody who is relatively skeptical of globalization as a, a, a real driving force in the history of global capitalism in the sense that... Um, when economists and economic historians talk about globalization, they tend to want to see price convergence. That's how they think that, like, yes, we really have markets integrating. We have globalization because we used to have different prices that were there because of the cost of transport. And those prices are converging because transport's getting less. And so we're globalizing. And there are some things where we see that, um, but a lot where we don't. And so I tend to think that the the actual economic forces of globalization you know, that that's an ideological project more than anything else. That a lot of the, you know, when I was learning economics and economic history in the 90s and early 2000s, all anybody wanted to talk about was globalization. And I think in retrospect, that was less about actual market convergence and more about a political and ideological project of undercutting wages and unions, you know, offshoring production, evading labor and environmental laws, things like that. Um, Now, a big question that I think perhaps we should talk more about, is whether that project was a kind of life support system for the global capitalist order. Um, There is a strong body of thought that suggests that capitalism ran into a large kind of terminal systemic productivity crisis in the 70s, and that since then we've seen a series of short-term fixes to kind of resuscitate the patient, if you will, and that this kind of globalization project by you know, accessing cheaper labor, getting away from regulation, that this was one of them to keep the system going. You know, I'm not sure that I'm completely convinced by that story, but it is a, a, a powerful argument. You write that for over a century from the Industrial Revolution through the Great Depression, crises of overproduction were the target of criticism from across the political spectrum, from aristocratic conservatives like Edmund Burke, who feared the anarchy of markets was uh, corroding the social order, to socialist radicals like Eugene Debs, who thought it generated exploitation and poverty. Many guests on our show have proposed we stop economic growth and the constant Mm. pursuit of growth to address climate change. How bad would stopping economic growth, would stopping overproduction and waste be for, quote unquote, the economy? Well, (laughs) uh, I think the answer to that depends very much on whether that's the only thing that happens or whether that happens along with a great many other things, in the sense that it's very hard for me to imagine, you know, we, we flip a big switch under the Mariner Eccles building in Washington, D.C., and that turns off economic growth, and then nothing <laughs> else changes, right? Um, instead, it seems to me that in order for that to happen, 
so many other things would need to change that it, it's kind of hard to answer what, you know, what the outcome would be because so many parameters would have to be different. Um, I think relative to perhaps to some of your other guests, I am a bit skeptical of a pure degrowth argument in the sense that the world as it exists today, as we know, is profoundly unequal. Uh, were we to just stop growth, we would freeze that inequality where it is. So a degrowth program, of course, would have to come with a very large scale, both within country and between country redistributive program. And that has proven to be at least as big a sticking point as a growth story. And in fact, you know, for most of the 20th century, growth was a way of not having that conversation or the politics of redistribution, right? We don't have to think about that if a rising tide is lifting all boats. Well, if the tide isn't you know, lifting the boats anymore, we do have to think about that redistributive problem. Well, then we just have, we end up confronting the politics of inequality all over again, which is kind of the main problem in the first place. So I'm not sure, uh, I'm not sure, what, you know, where the substituting one impossible question with another moves us forward. But of course, that is the, you know, the fundamental dilemma of our time is how to, how to solve that. Yeah, exactly. So that's a very uh, keen insight, too. I thought that was very interesting. So what's wrong with an economic system that depends upon waste as long as it creates profits, which create jobs and puts food on people's tables and, you know, uh, roofs over their heads and clothes on their back? If a waste-based economy is providing resources for people, what's wrong with having an economy based on the production of waste? Don't we only have to figure out how to get rid of the waste or properly recycle and solve the problem? Mm. Well, there are a few different answers to that. Um, and, you know, the obvious one is that, well, some resources, some systems are finite, and we will run them down. Now, an optimistic, you know, techno-optimist economist type might say, well, if that happens, those resources will just get more and more expensive, and we'll substitute some sort of technology, and everything will be fine. The evidence for that doesn't seem to me to be very strong, but, you know, that that is the argument. Um, you know, instead, part of the motivation for the piece was that I thought about a fundamental insight that my students often have that I think I had when I was a student that I think many normal people have, which is that you look at the world around you and you think, huh, on the one hand, there are a lot of people who have very little to nothing. And on the other hand, not only are there some people who have so much, but there's a whole huge amount of stuff that gets destroyed. Right? And then there's just kind of a basic logic. Look, we destroy a bunch of food. Also, people are hungry. Look, there's a bunch of empty housing. Also, people are homeless. You know, there, there's a fundamental uh, repulsion to that. And I often find that I have students reacting to that insight. They take my classes, they take a lot of economics classes, and they learn very complicated ideas that kind of justify that, uh, that injustice. And I thought, well, hang on a second, that <laughs> the point remains, right? And there was a whole body of political and economic thought, especially in the 19th century, confronting that basic, you know, injustice and inefficiency in the emerging capitalist system. And a lot of that body of thought has been lost or forgotten or kind of consigned to the dustbin of history, because we tend to think, well, a new, better, you know, post-Keynesian economics emerged in the 20th century. And so that stuff was all old and outdated and useless. And I, and I don't think it is because I think that it confronts this still existing fundamental, you know, uh, contradiction between on the one hand producing so much 
that so efficiently that we're constantly destroying an excess while at the same time producing poverty. Um, and so that contradiction alone seems like, you know, e even if resources were infinite, continuing to produce on the one hand poverty and on the other hand waste seems like the failure of an economic system full stop because the point <laughs> right is to uh, of, of having an economy at all is supposed to be uh, to maximize scarce resources such that the most people have the most good I guess um, which clearly is not what's going on or has been going on so can technology either save capitalism or us from overproduction to save us from wasting so much or is there simply no mate no money to be made in stopping waste and therefore there's not going to be a technology to be pursued to stop that overproduction well i think there's two different ways of thinking about the technological component um and so one is just pure efficiency in the production process itself and that's particularly interesting because that's the part that seems to have broken since the 70s or 80s um, that rates of productivity growth across the world and especially in the developed West have been low and stagnant. And the effects of the computer revolution, the internet, all of that just does not show up in the productivity numbers. You know, that there, there are a couple interesting economics papers from the 70s and 80s that show that like all of the electrification of office work, that the, like the main productivity improvement was the standardization of the stapler, you know, stuff like that, that <laughs> had productivity effects in the 20th century, that the internet, and, and for all of its vaunted, you know, connections and communication mostly hasn't had. And so since that, those productivity numbers have been so stagnant for so long, the sources of growth have had to come from elsewhere, keeping down wages, you know, avoiding regulation, uh, outsourcing, offshoring, all kinds of that sort of thing. And, you know, there's an interesting way that that suggests maybe the system's breaking down, right? Maybe there's some deep, I don't know, structural problem. But the other side of the technology to think about is exactly in terms of internet communications and logistics. And so, you know, one, one thing that's in the piece a bit, but got a bit lost, <laughs> excuse me, uh, is about calculation and how economies assign and move information. And for a lot of the 20th century, one of the big libertarian arguments against socialism or communism or a planned economy, this was Hayek's whole thing, was that no planner could ever have enough information and enough access to enough logistics quick enough to run an economy. And so a market was a big calculating machine to maximize decision making given imperfect information and given the fact that nobody could ever know enough. And so in a weird way, it's possible that the existence of internet-based logistics information could solve that problem. You know, the, the, this is a kind of favorite argument of some, I don't know, contemporary leftists that Amazon, if nationalized, is what socialism could look like. You know, that it's like one big centralized calculating uh, planned economy machine, it's just all run, you know, for the profit of Jeff Bezos, rather than, you know, the most good for the most people. So maybe that's a solution. But it's not a capitalist solution. Right? Uh, that isn't going to solve the fundamental problem that we produce based on profit, not based on need. Uh, and if you don't solve that, well, you know, there's not much else that you can do. 
we had a discussion on that kind of centralized economy, whether within uh, state communism or within uh, capitalism. We discussed this on the show way back in May of 2019. We spoke with Lee Phillips and Michael Rozworski, uh-huh. co-authors of the People's Republic of Walmart, how mm-hmm. the world's biggest corporations are laying the foundation for socialism, which explains why Walmart and other giant multinational corporations proved the feasibility of large-scale, centrally planned economies and how the left could use the technology and infrastructure of capital to transform a global economy in service of equality and security for all people. Mm -hmm. Have centralized economies proven to be more efficient, even in capitalism? And if it has, how does that change the argument, the debate, that capitalism is about competition motivating innovation when it becomes as much a centrally planned economy, at least in certain sectors, uh, very much resembling socialism. How does that change the argument that capitalism is about competition and not collectivism? Mm -hmm. Well, and interestingly enough, that story about how Walmart and Amazon say are building these capacities, that's exactly what Karl Marx thought would happen, is he thought the most, you know, big centralized, coordinated, advanced capitalist entities with immiserated workers, as indeed Walmart and Amazon have, those would be the places where like the workers would take over the production and, you know, usher in socialism. Hasn't happened, but, but, you know, I think an easy answer to your question is that the story about competition driving innovation is ideology. You know, the, the evidence for that being the case is not very strong, um, at least in, in my knowledge of the economic history, that a lot of you know innovation is induced very often by government programs and subsidies. Uh, you know, it's underwritten by giant public research institutions. In the case of, say, the Industrial Revolution, they're like shop floor improvements that the expert workers figure out to improve their particular tasks. You know, it's not CEO genius solves a problem. It's like the worker on the shop floor who understands how the machines work and understands, well, if we like fix this widget in the machine, it'll make the machine run better. And then, well, that machine gets better and that becomes standardized practice. You know, that that's not about competition. That's about workers understanding their jobs. Um, and I think that tends to be a source of innovation, uh, whereas competition can incentivize things. And I'm thinking here, surprisingly enough, of a, a, a book by uh, Robert Schiller and I think Ken Arrow, somebody else, I've forgotten who his co-author was, with a very stupid title, Fishing for Fools, with <laughs> both fish, fishing and fools spelled with P-H. Oh, Jesus. Uh, yeah, I'm very sorry. But um, <laughs> they're like two Nobel laureates in economics, but not literature, obviously. Anyway, and their their point is that uh, what competition, according to them, and you know, two very card carrying centrist economists, according to them, what competition incentivizes is cheating uh, and fraud and you know, crime. You might say, because if one competitor figures out a way to cut corners uh, and cheat and evade regulation, well, they're going to get some benefit from that. They're going to compete everybody else. And so there'll be a race to figure out how to do that. And so more energy and, and innovation goes into evading rules, uh, and responsibility than say inventing new technologies. Um, so, you know, I think the, the story of competition, uh, producing 
innovation is a thin one. Instead, when we talk about overproduction, that's exactly the story, is that it makes sense for each individual entity in a production system to maximize their output so they can sell as much as possible. Well, if everybody does that, then we get an unexpected consequence of having produced too much. You know, and so there's a way, and this was one of the key critiques throughout the 19th century of capitalism, is that it doesn't produce efficiency, it produces anarchy. And even defenders of capitalism thought, guys, this is our big problem here. It's like we're we're producing anarchy in production. There's you know, gluts on the one hand, but poverty on the other. There's waste, but also scarcity. This doesn't make any sense. And somehow in the 20th century, we've moved from thinking capitalism is dynamic but anarchic to thinking capitalism is efficient and rational. And that seems like a profoundly ideological transformation to me. Yes, definitely. Uh, you also write that uh, when you're talking about uh, the cheap money era, the low interest rates of the mm. early part of the 21st century leading up to the begin right at the beginning of the pandemic, you write, whether capital glut or not, one lasting impact of the era of cheap money is that it underpinned the huge investments necessary to produce the shale boom in U.S. fossil fuels. Indeed, mm. there is no greater example of the problems of overproduction, negative externalities, and market failure than the relentless desecration of the biosphere. So how dangerous then is cheap money for the environment? Do, do low interest rates mean a threat to the environment? Hmm, that's an interesting question. I think low interest rates, given the political decisions about the allocation of capital yes now if we had different decision making you know different power well then maybe uh instead of investing in a shale boom you know we had capitalized on these very low interest rates to build a national solar powered high-speed rail network right that like all sorts of things that we could dream of as large-scale infrastructural or productive uh, investments were certainly possible in that decade or so of low interest rates. That's not what we did with it, right? Instead, we uh, inflated a bunch of asset bubbles, real estate bubbles, shale boom, cryptocurrency, uh, you know, all sorts of ridiculous things, and squandered this extremely strange, aberrant moment in economic history when you know interest rates were negative. Uh, there were trillions of dollars sloshing around looking for any kind of productive asset or any kind of productive investment. And it didn't go into, you know, a, a kind of global altering transformation of the economy onto a non-fossil fuel, you know, uh, whatever, fully automated luxury gay-based communism, right? Instead, it went into a shale boom in, in North Dakota, uh, or into inflating real estate prices in San Francisco, or uh, into WeWork and you know other ridiculous things of that nature. You mentioned two things that I want to touch on. First of all, let's talk about WeWork just for a moment, and then I want to talk to, about your cryptocurrency article. You mm -hmm. write in response to the 2008 crisis from 2009 to 2014, the Federal Reserve 
bought something like $4.5 trillion in assets from the financial sector in order to keep markets working and liquidity flowing, a policy called quantitative easing. In 2013, Larry Summers argued that this torrent of liquidity, as well as persistently low interest rates, were leading to what he called secular stagnation in the economy. All that money uh, struggled to find many safe, profitable investments, inflating a series of asset bubbles, as you were saying, in real estate, tech, and stocks. The ongoing bubble in everything certainly looks like a capital glut, as too much capital has been sloshing around into too many ridiculous asset ventures that are now deflating from WeWork to cryptocurrency to a variety of loss-making tech startups. So what is the likelihood that a bubble in everything can burst everywhere all at once? What would happen if it did? Ooh, um, I mean, a bubble in everything can burst all at once. That's <laughs> unfortunately. Um, so I've been thinking about this. Uh, and you should, I, I'm going to preface this by saying, Nobody should ever believe a historian who predicts the future. So. <laughs> yes. And that's why historians often <laughs> yeah. don't want to predict the future. So go ahead. Just like an economist, they don't want to tell you where to put your money. Right. 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 Yeah. Don't, if I tell you where to put your money, don't listen to me about that either. Um, so, but I, you know, I teach a class on the history of economic crisis and students, the general public often want to know, like, where is the next crisis coming from? I'm like, man, you know, if I knew that, I would be shorting whatever that thing was. Um, but but a few things that we can say, I don't know, with a, a, a relative degree of uh, plausibility, is that you know that decade of very low interest rates meant a lot of borrowing, right? It meant a lot of private borrowing. It meant a lot of public borrowing, particularly through the pandemic. Lots and lots of businesses, people, countries, particularly countries in the global south, borrowed a lot. Now, I am not a particularly debt, you know, panicked person, uh, particularly in the U.S. The U.S. is a special case, different story. But uh, there's a lot of leverage out in the world. And eventually, you know, and, th and this is the, the, the argument of the somewhat eccentric heterodox economist Hyman Minsky, who would say, look, some number of those borrowers are going to fail. That's just life. It may, it may not be fraud. It may not be, you know, any any particular exogenous disaster. Some of them are just going to fail. That's how capitalism is. Businesses fail. Well, look, if enough of them fail, uh, that means that whoever has lent to them is not getting repaid, right? Well, so that means that they might restrict their lending, which might mean that other entities that are expecting to borrow cheaply can't do it particularly now that interest rates are higher than they used to be, that makes all of that more unaffordable. And so it kind of only takes a moment of some systemically important, over-leveraged financial institution, a Lehman Brothers say, uh, to fail. And they then can't repay all of their creditors. And so everybody scrambles for cash as quickly as possible. That in turn puts pressure on the central bank. And then we face a political question. Will central banks step in? So far, the answer has been unambiguously yes. Uh, and that was one of the great dramas of April 2020, right? Is that the Federal Reserve, you know, first activated one and a half trillion dollars uh, to cover the short term paper market. And then they cut like seven steps in their interest rate all in one go. And then they committed to what they called at the time QE infinity. 
And they said, look, we stand ready to buy not only what we have historically bought, which is very safe government debt. That's what they bought during the quantitative easing of the 2010s. But we will even buy commercial debt, which they'd never done before. And they were prepared to do it infinitely. Now, you know, I don't know how many times you can have a systemic credit disaster that then has to be solved by the central bank committing to infinity. Clearly, you can do it once. I don't know how many more times you can do it. <laughs> right. And I don't know what happens when that fails. Because the the kind of the house of leveraged cards, leveraged house of cards, one of those uh, is so big that its eventual deflation seems is so unpredictable um, as to like what sectors will fail and when. Um, tech is an interesting example of this because so many of the tech companies have no assets. You know, um, they have very few employees. They have very little real estate the asset that they have is their data. And I don't know that we yet have a good example of a large-scale tech company failing and their creditors in bankruptcy end up with the data. You know, do they want that? Is it worth the money? Maybe Elon Musk will show us. I don't know. Um, but given the preponderance of tech keeping the stock market, uh, profit rates, you know, keeping the the bleeding edge of global capitalism going, and considering how hollow so many of those entities are, it seems worrisome. <laughs> That's pretty much an understatement. <laughs> uh, we are speaking with economic historian Trevor Jackson, who's been on to discuss his Baffler Magazine article, Overproduction and Its Discontents. Now I want to move on to a more recent article of his, New York Review of Books piece, The Price of Crypto, Despite Its Booster's Frequent References to d Democracy and Freedom, Cryptocurrency Reflects a Radical Marketization of Politics, in which major players can rewrite the rules as needed. In that article, you write of Bitcoin, when a transaction happens, Happened, the participants would race to do the difficult computational problems the system required to verify it relative to all previous transactions in the ledger. Mm -hmm. And the first participant to verify would be awarded with new bitcoins. The system is called proof of work. In this way, new bitcoins could slowly be created or quote-unquote mined up to an eventual limit because the computations needed to verify the chain of transactions would continually require more and more processing power gradually driving the production of new coins to zero, which would also eliminate the potential for inflation. With no centralized authority, there was no bank that could fail and no CEO to prosecute. But you add Bitcoin was and is terrible. Proof of work meant everyone in the network raced to verify every transaction, but there could only be one winner, generating a huge amount of wasted, redundant effort and truly appalling consumption of electricity and computer chips as participants engaged in an arms race to build bigger and more powerful computers. How sustainable then, Trevor, is cryptocurrency if it takes so much energy and increasingly takes more and more with each transaction? Conversely, how sustainable is the planet if crypto continues and grows more and more? Well, crypto is sustainable in the sense that, like, a virus is, <laughs> in, in that it's <laughs> quite hard to eradicate. Um, and that, that was part of the logic of the initial Bitcoin network is that there's no building for fraud regulators to go seize, right? In order to kill Bitcoin, theoretically, conceptually, you'd have to kill every 
computer in the network or like get everybody to stop running it. And as long as, I don't know, a few people are running it, it still exists. Now, maybe it becomes marginal and irrelevant and ridiculous and it's like a hobby or something, but uh, it's hard to kill deliberately. On the other hand, you know, I think we're about to see whether an era of five, six percent interest rates kills it on its own. You know, I, th I very much think that it's an artifact of low interest rates and a bunch of cheap capital chasing yield. And it went into these, you know, it, it's a big casino. And if a bunch of people are flush with cash and there's a casino rigged for their benefit, well, they're going to play it. You know, if if the money gets scarcer and a little more difficult, they're going to play a bit less. And so I think on the one hand, the Federal Reserve is, is going to strangle it a fair bit. But I don't know if it's ever going to go away. And what I really, my real concern and my real drive for wanting to write the piece was you know, the system that you've described is, is the logic of Bitcoin, the first and biggest uh, and best known cryptocurrency. But it's been expanded since then, particularly by its biggest rival, which is called Ethereum, which has tried to spread the technology of the blockchain, which is exactly what you just described. This is like inviolable ledger. Uh, that's a record of all transactions, which is a way of trying to like verify the legitimacy of any transaction while keeping everybody in the chain anonymous. Um, the founders of Ethereum have tried to spread this technology to all manner of other facets of social, political, and economic life. And that seems, you know, that it's going to be hard to put that toothpaste back in the tube. Um, Bitcoin, the network could end up just like, I don't know, like a dying video game, you know, that a few hobbyists play. But now that the idea of keeping any kind of public record or even private logistical record on this technological system, I, I, I fear that that idea will be difficult to eradicate. You also point out that with crypto like Bitcoin, it's inefficient, it's difficult to exchange for actual cash. Those who were finding the most utility were likely involved in some sort of criminal activity. Yet we hear about these people who made millions, if not billions, off of Bitcoin, right? A website for a blockchain timestamping business, keep that in mind, it's a website for a blockchain timestamping business, claims... There are roughly 24,233 wallets worth more than $1 million among people who are unquestionably Bitcoin millionaires. How can there uh -huh. be so many crypto millionaires? How can there be so much reported success of crypto while it's volatile, unpredictable, yep. inefficient, and difficult to cash out? Well, so one thing about crypto is that very often when you see uh, numbers, well, first of all, they're very hard to verify. But second... Usually what's happening is what we're doing is we're saying, okay, there's a number of Bitcoin or Ethereum or whatever cryptocurrency in this wallet, right? And then we're saying at current prices on a given exchange, that amount of that cryptocurrency is worth this number of dollars. But you don't have those dollars. You have that cryptocurrency, right? You'd have to actually cash out. And you know, for if you have listeners who are only just learning about crypto, 
to my mind, the main kind of killer argument against it, aside from the environmental destruction that it causes, is that it's very hard to cash out. Uh, trying to get back to dollars means going through an exchange, which is going to take a cut, or it could just be fraudulent, like, you know, BTX or, or uh, FTX, rather. BTX a band? FTX. Uh, you know, that failed in last November. Binance that's under investigation, etc. You go through an exchange. The prices on the exchange all vary. They vary over time. The process of getting through a transaction can take hours. You have to pay a variable fee on that transaction. And then once you're trying to get your money out, it goes to a bank and your bank has a fraud officer, which is going to look at this anonymous incoming transaction and say, well, that looks like fraud to me and probably freeze it. And so, you know, we can say, yes, there are crypto millionaires in the same way that, well, there might be, uh, you know, casino chip millionaires. You still have to cash out, right? And the other prong of that is that very frequently when you hear of somebody, you know, there's a, there's a classic story of somebody early on who bought pizza with Bitcoin and you think, ah, oh, wouldn't it be great to have been the person buying that, you know, receiving that Bitcoin for, for pizza? Well, that wasn't that like Domino's accepted Bitcoin. Domino's does not accept Bitcoin, contrary to what is sometimes advertised. What happened is that somebody said on an internet message board, anybody who sends me pizza, I will give you Bitcoin. And so somebody else bought pizza from Domino's and gave it to you know whoever in exchange for some Bitcoin. Okay, you can do that, right? But that doesn't mean that it's accepted as standards of payment you know, in the economy writ large, let alone accepted for tax payments, let alone something that wages and prices are denominated in. Uh, I mean, that's a private transaction. You could pay in coupons or monopoly money or IOUs or whatever. That doesn't make it actual currency. Um, I'm a millionaire in monopoly money. Doesn't mean, you know, <laughs> it's very hard to change that into US dollars. Uh, so I am, I am skeptical uh, of the reality of many of those claims and of their utility. As long as you stay in the casino, you can be a big player. And if you are an early adopter, if you are a developer, uh, if you are connected to those people, indeed, some people have made a lot of money. And indeed, some people make a lot of money at casinos. Um, that doesn't make it a currency. You mentioned the person behind Ethereum and how their initial idea was to use Ethereum for multi-signature escrows, savings accounts, and peer-to-peer -peer gambling. And he said that since any group of enthusiasts could use the technology to launch their own projects, the only limit was imagination. Other blockchain peddlers claim it may be an ideal way to preserve shipping inventories, medical records, electoral accounts, and property titles. So is the goal of Bitcoin, was the original goal of the person who began Bitcoin to replace the role of the government, to overthrow the government? Is Bitcoin's intent, was its initial intent in any way a kind of people's revolution or a kind of financial coup? Well, well so Bitcoin, I think, was an attempt to replace banks. Ethereum, and, and based on a very rudimentary understanding of banks and currency, Ethereum is an attempt to push that. You know, I don't, I don't know if Vitalik Buterin is the the founder and kind of driving force of Ethereum. 
I think maybe his grasp of what a government is is so weak that I don't know if it, if his idea is quite that grandiose. He does speak in terms of kind of future utopias where all social decisions are made through uh, coin holders voting on policies. Uh, he mostly so far has used examples that are on a pretty small scale. And so he would say, you know, you, Chuck, should issue uh, hell coins and all of your listeners can pay you to uh, obtain hell coins and then holders of hell coins could all vote on who your next guest should be. Uh, and in that way, he would claim you have achieved a kind of economic democracy. Uh, now, how real is that as a as an actual political philosophy? Uh, my sense, you know, I, I read his book with his articles in it. And, you know, I don't, he's clearly a very skilled computer programmer, but on a social level, this guy is just dumb as a bag of hammers and, you know, has a kind of, I don't know, I don't want to say sophomoric, um, has a very limited grasp of most uh, social and political thought. Um, and Indeed, I think it's a pretty good rule of thumb that if you encounter somebody who claims that they can solve a social problem using cryptocurrency or blockchain, what that means is that they neither understand cryptocurrency nor the social problem that they're describing. Uh, is it a coup? I mean, I think I think that is the impossible dream maybe that these people have. I think of it maybe more as an attempt at escape. Right. Uh, I think you had recently Quinn Slobodian on to talk about his new book. I think thinking in those terms of like, how do we construct political and social and economic entities outside of any kind of regulatory apparatus or system of accountability and control? I don't think it's an attempt to take over the government. I think it's an attempt to escape it. We have been speaking with economic historian Trevor Jackson, who's been on to discuss his Baffler Magazine article, Overproduction and Its Discontents, as well as his new New York Review of Books piece, The Price of Crypto. One last question for you, Trevor. And as always, it's the question from hell, the question we hate to ask. You may hate to answer. Our audience is going to hate your response. Make sure you check out uh, Trevor's first book, uh, Impunity and Capitalism, The Afterlives of European Financial Crises from 1690 to 1830, which is now available from uh, Cambridge University Press. So you mentioned one case in which $150 million was locked in 587 wallets forever. There was a case yep. of that. And last summer's crypto crash brought uh, another exchange, Binance, under federal investigation. And of course, in November 2022, FTX entered bankruptcy proceedings. One of the principal selling points of crypto is the allure of getting in on the ground floor of the next big thing. Don't you wish you had bought bitcoins in 2009? Well, if you had, you probably would not be rich today. The FBI would have seized your bitcoins when it shut down Silk Road or would have lost them in the Mt. Gox hack as well. That's G-O-X. But that's what every person, Trevor, tells me when it comes to crypto. That's how they all defend crypto. They all say, yes, there were winners, but you all got in too late. You, you're saying that's not the case. So why, <laughs> why is that the story? How might believing that story 
benefit the whole idea of cryptocurrency? Well, that is one of the big important points is that for the early adopters to cash out, they need new entrants. They need somebody who's willing to buy their cryptocurrency at a very high price. So they need new people willing to do that. Uh, and so that's where you come in. That's where they say, well, you missed the first wave, but you better get in now because if you get in later, it's going to be even worse. But what they want you to do is get in so that they can sell you their cryptocurrency and get dollars from you. That's why so much advertising is about trying to get people into crypto. That's why if you remember the ridiculous craze with the NFTs, NFTs were advertising for crypto. You buy NFTs with crypto. They are part of a like a crypto kind of crowdfunding project. And all of that was an attempt to get new people into the system because that's the only way that the old players can cash out. You know, that's how any pyramid scheme works is you constantly need new people to get in. And so the people in have a very strong, and I think sometimes, I mean, it's diluted, but in a sincere way, a very strong desire to uh, claim, you know, social, political benefits of what they're doing uh, because they need you. There's no other way for them to exit the casino. Uh, and, you know, the more people that come in, the more in that predicament. And so the more money, the more voices lend themselves towards making that exact claim. But it just isn't true. So is it a Ponzi scheme then? Well, you know, the thing about Charles Ponzi's scheme is that he was selling actual postage reply stamps that you could actually use. <laughs> so he was actually <laughs> giving you something you could use as opposed, uh, as opposed to Bitcoin. Yeah, that's right. It it doesn't it doesn't ascend or elevate to the level of a Ponzi scheme. Wow. Well, Trevor, I really appreciate appreciate you being on the show. I am going to annoy you for the rest of your life to ask you to be back on the show in the near future. I really Great. appreciate the writing that Please you're do. doing at Baffler and New York Review of Books, and everybody should check out your new book, Impunity and Capitalism. Thank you so much for being on on the show this week. Thanks so much for having me. All right, take care. All right. This is not the media. This is hell, and you know this is not the media because there's not a chance in hell you will hear a structural analysis of capitalism or that it produces too much and depends upon wasting and wasting and wasting energy anywhere else. You will definitely not hear how evil cryptocurrency and its backers are because, well, they are potential advertisers, so in the establishment media, they are above criticism. If the talk we just had with Trevor is a reminder that you cannot and will not hear a discussion like that anywhere else but here on This Is Hell. Show your appreciation for This Is Hell, providing nearly 27 years of content that you could not and cannot get anywhere else, giving airtime to opinions and perspectives you cannot hear anywhere else and providing that content to you absolutely free, including nearly 10 years of shows for free right now at thisishell.com. Show your appreciation for all of that. And that always being free to be by becoming a subscriber to our weekly bonus Patreon podcast, which goes live on Patreon at patreon.com slash this is hell every Thursday morning at 10 a.m. Chicago time. Or you can show your support for a completely listener supported this is hell by visiting this is hell.com and just clicking on support on our most recent Thursday, June 1st Patreon podcast. I admitted that I'm not as smart as I sound on the radio. And that we are the only radio show, live stream, or podcast that gives you a 100% guarantee that you are smarter 
than the host. That's me. And on our most recent Patreon podcast, I explained why you are very likely brighter than I am because it took me a three-hour drive followed by three consecutive days of mile-and-a-half hikes into the woods, up and down sandy dunes, finally descending sharply down to the shores of Lake Michigan in the southwestern part of the state bearing that Great Lakes name. It took me all that to figure out something you likely figured out without leaving your home. And that is what's wrong with us and what we can do to right that wrong. Spoiler alert, there's also a discussion of the most referenced movie on This Is Hell throughout our nearly 27-year history, and that is John Carpenter's 1988 classic, They Live, which is very appropriate during a monologue about what's wrong with us. Also, on Patreon, we've often been asked to feature in-depth interviews, not only with writers of nonfiction, but novelists as well, to have conversations with writers of fiction, not just those who write nonfiction. But there's a reason we don't do interviews with authors of fiction, and I explained why on our most recent Patreon podcast. However, we have had one novelist on the show to talk about a work that had just been published. And that was back in 2008 when we spoke with James Howard Kunstler, who, about his uh, latest work at the time, World Made by Hand, a novel of the post-oil future. Peak oil was all the rage at the time, the belief that we would soon simply run out of oil and would have to go fossil-free, saving us from climate change. That we would fight climate change by no longer contributing to greenhouse gas-causing emissions because there would be no more oil to burn. Of course, peak oilers either did not know about or were in denial of the latest technologies to get CO2 that were already being employed, like tar sand extraction, fracking of natural gas, deep water extraction going even deeper. And it turns out that not all, not only was Kunstler all in denial about peak oil, he was also in denial about other things because he turned all Trumper. Yep, he went all MAGA. That said, his novel was about a world without oil, which unsurprisingly was not something that was being discussed in the establishment media. Also, the conversation is a kind of guide to better understand that person, you know, who was an Obama supporter, maybe into alternative medicine, a bit new agey, who is certainly not, not in denial of climate change, but insisted the planet and nature would likely prevail, prevail somehow. And then, surprise, surprise, they went straight up MAGA, as Kunstler did, only a few short years after our talk on his novel that imagined a fantastical post-peak oil world. But the only way you can hear and learn what's wrong with us and what we can do about it without having to drive for hours so you can walk through the woods and wait in a freezing great lake, and to hear our 15-year-old conversation with a novelist who would eventually go all MAGA, but who at the time was in thrall with peak oil, the only way you can get all of that is by showing your appreciation for completely listener-supported This Is Hell, by subscribing to our weekly Patreon podcast, again, going live every Thursday morning at 10 Chicago time. If you do, you get immediate access to more than five years of Patreon podcasts, as well as a special code word that gives you a $5 discount on all of our stuff that you can find at thisishell.com when you click on support. Check out all the perks for Patreon patrons at patreon.com slash thisishell. Will, please remind us what is this week's question from hell, and please tell us how our listeners are responding so far. This week's question from hell is, what's a priority in your budget that needs to be cut? 
listeners on Patreon have been uh, generous. NYCM and A-Hole says funding Congress. All right. Keith T <coughs> says dropping my That Is Heaven podcast monthly <laughs> Patreon donation and giving it instead to This Is Hell. Oh, thank you, Keith. Thank you, Keith. Uh, Laddie S says scissors. Scissors need cutting and nice. knives. Scissors. Knives need cut, cut, cutting. <laughs> Wow. All right. Wow. Uh, wow. Somebody's got a cutting fetish. <laughs> Yikes. Uh, Justin M. says debt payments. Christina asks a very good question. Why would I cut it if it's a priority? Mm, good point. Good point. Very good point. She uh, sees the hole in our logic. She sees through us. Uh, essential answers. I cut my coffee with a scoop of Ben and Jerry's. <laughs> I like that. Okay. Um, Old Grouch says, food and gasoline. After all, they're not counted in the inflation rate. So I get no adjustment in my social social security payment for them. All right. Go figure. That's Neil C says, the dentist. Sorry, little drippy dentist. (laughs) (laughs) The patrons are joking with each other. Yep, they are. so that's that's what Patreon has for us so far. Uh, anything on Discord? Uh, let's check the old Discord. I don't want to change my audio device. Discord. <laughs> uh, nothing on Discord. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from Hell wins your choice of whatever this is hell swag you want. You can see all of our stuff by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. We will be announcing this week's winner following Jeff Dorchin and his weekly moment of truth. We'll have more of your answers to this week's question from Hell later this week. And now the return of Dr. Sebastian Vopper, a historian himself, and the past inside the present when Sebastian gives us some history from our past that will help us make better sense of our present. But before we play Sebastian's segment, that's right, we are playing his segment, we want to come clean because we are doing something we never, ever, ever, ever do, and that is we're playing a pre-recorded segment by a contributor. We believe that live radio is better, more honest, more authentic, more human. It reveals the truth about the people doing the show instead of a pre-produced package of artificiality. And who wants to listen to as the late and horrible mayor of the city of Chicago, Richard J. Daly, once said, a bunch of fakers. However, because we had the last two Mondays off, Sebastian could not do the show. Then a scheduling problem made it so we had to skip today's as well. So Sebastian pre-recorded this week's Past Inside the Present, which sucks because now I can't do crosstalk with him and talk about what I recently learned when it comes to soul food in the city where Seb now lives, Grand Rapids, Michigan. Who knew? But without further ado, and with hopes that Seb can return to the show with a live segment next week, it's time for Sebastian. The past inside the present.
It's Pride Month, so happy Pride to all of you fabulous creatures out there who celebrate. Normally, I would now follow this with a whole segment on some LGBTQ history, but we missed the past two weeks, which were Asian and Pacific Islander Month, so we'll just be a little bit behind the times here in hell. And instead, I will talk about some fascinating historical facts of the Hawaiian Islands and their people. Get your sunscreen ready, but please make sure it's reef safe. Hawaii is one of the most fascinating places out there. Uh, This group of volcanic islands is very young, geologically speaking. It's one of the youngest pieces of land that this here Earth has. And human presence on the islands is also fairly recent. Archaeologists are not quite sure when the first itinerant Polynesians set foot on the archipelago. Latest radiocarbon dating suggests that human settlement off the Hawaiian Islands took place somewhere between 950 at the earliest and um, 1320 the latest. Uh, CE, common era, AD, so, you know, our time. Um, Native Hawaiian oral histories collected in the 1800s uh, recorded that uh, that at the time, so in the mid-1800s, there had been about 28 generations of Hawaiians, which agrees generally with the radiocarbon dating of ancient Hawaiian sites. However, Native Hawaiian mythology talks about there also having been people on the islands before uh, the Polynesian arrival, and that would have been the Menehune people, mythical dwarves, who, according to legend, built fish ponds on the coastlines and eventually were pushed into the remote valleys by the encroaching Polynesians. Whether or not there is any historical veracity to the Menehune legends is unclear, until up even today similar similar figures exist in other polynesian cultures in any case the hawaiian islands were likely settled around the first millennium ce and that is one of those pretty wild facts of the earth because that is very very late but also just look at the map and look at where these islands are people have to be pretty advanced to get there and Especially, they have to be pretty advanced to get there in numbers big enough to actually successfully settle them. And in spite of all the Eurocentrist supremacy that we grew up with and which and with which we look upon people that are not us, that are not white, um, and by extension, the, the supremacy and, and everything that we look upon with, uh, the disdain that we look upon with uh, onto the people of Greater Polynesia, these folks were incredibly advanced. They knew how to make the vast Pacific Ocean their home. They knew how to navigate by the stars. They knew how to find their way around these boundless stretches of water and how to get from island to island. And most importantly, they also knew how to get back and forth between them. Um, You will hear a lot about the Polynesian canoes, and if you're anything like me, you'll imagine you'll imagine a rinky-dink, ten-foot-long, two-foot-wide little boat. But no, my friend, a Polynesian canoe belies this notion quite, quite massively. Those were very large little ships, basically. Uh, sure, they were not as large as anything Europeans built, and they are were surely not as big as anything that the Chinese built, because, you know, like, Chinese ships of the time were, when they were ocean-going, uh, <laughs> dwarfed, like, what most Europeans were, were doing. Um, but they were by no means, the Polynesian canoes were by no means insubstantial little dinghies. 
The Hawaiian Islands, because they are really, really, really far away from everything else, had a very unique ecosystem, and they still do. Um, but that ecosystem has been altered quite significantly since, because the Polynesians arrived uh, with a, a bunch of things uh, called canoe animals and canoe plants. The largest native, the largest native Hawaiian mammal is a bat. Um, but the canoe animals that the Polynesians brought with them, pigs and chicken and a now extinct breed of dog and the Polynesian rat, kind of wrecked havoc um, on the original untouched Hawaiian ecosystem already. Uh, the Polynesians also brought with them, as I said, canoe plants, taro roots, bananas, coconuts, and breadfruit. And they also introduced sweet potatoes to the islands, which spread throughout Polynesia roughly at the time or slightly after the initial settlement. And that, by the way, is kind of a big deal, and as far as I know, hasn't been entirely cleared up yet, because sweet potatoes, like all potatoes, originate in the Americas. Um, and it indicates that Polynesians at some point during this time period had cultural contact with people from Central or South America. But how exactly that happened is not quite clear. Um, so what did the culture of ancient Hawaiians look like? Society was stratified by castes. At the top were the ali'i, the chiefs, hereditary nobility, who legend had it were descended from the gods. Just below them were the kahuna, who were priests, but also craftsmen of various kinds. And there is an interesting notion here that combines expertise in a craft to the spiritual world, but also shows just the importance that expert craftspeople had for the society. It was pretty important to know how to build canoes and irrigation system and fish ponds and to know the herbs and growing conditions and whatnot to keep society alive. Hawaiian religion and religious practice was generally similar to that of other Polynesian cultures because, well, they are a Polynesian culture. It's, what, it's where they come from. Um, it was influenced by both people from the society islands, which is where most ancient Hawaiians are suspected to have originated, as well as from the Tahitian uh, priests. Hawaiian religion revolved around the correct way of doing things and operated um, around what's called the kapu system. Uh, this is a system of religious taboos or uh, how not to live and how not to do things. The ruling classes could declare things kapu, but where there were also quite a few cultural practices that were considered that that were considered kapu for example men and women could not eat together because men and women eating together was kapu as was fishing during certain times of the year um and even though there was a lot of intertribal warfare between the islands the hawaiians thrived on the archipelago of course there is not that much space on the islands because you know they're islands so the development of the hawaiian population was limited by the amount of land available archaeologists and anthropologists and historians estimate that the population of the islands peaked somewhere between 200,000 people at the lower end and a million at the upper end of estimations and that peak actually happened sometimes before european contact 
the islands also developed a complex economy of local expert craftspeople who exchanged their products with the local expert craftspeople of other islands. Some places began specializing in making canoes, others in making houses and thatched roofs, and others in fishing, and so on and so forth. And so a complex trade network came into being. The land itself was not owned by anyone. Chiefs only managed cultivation, and cultivation rights could transfer from one to the other. Um, and while the islands are very, very, very far away from everything else, they are also on the way to everywhere else. They are in the middle of the trade winds, uh, which is why they have a really nice climate. Uh, Europeans only put the island literally on the map in 1778, but there were other non-Hawaiian people who had been there before that. Uh, there are indications of Spanish uh, shipwreck survivors, as well as infrequent contact with Japanese sailors and Japanese shipwreck survivors. Uh, the Hawaiians did not work with metals. However, by the time James Cook, quote-unquote, discovered the islands, uh, the natives already possessed some metal blades, which um, probably came from Japan, uh, probably came from one of the Japanese shipwrecks. Um, and which they eventually used to kill the famed explorer with after he had the bright idea of trying to abduct the Ali'i Nui, or king of the island of Hawaii, uh, to force the natives into submission, uh, which they did not agree with. So a fight ensued, and uh, old James got the stabby-stabby treatment and died. Uh, this had been James Cook's second visit to the islands. He first came across them in 1778 and returned in 1779 and then, well, did not return from that trip. At least not, um, you know, upright. Uh, but the damage was done. The Hawaiian islands were now literally on the maps and the Europeans began to come to the islands with increasing frequency. And one side effect of this contact was the rise of a warrior chief from the big island who went by the name of Kamehameha. Uh, and with the help of European firearms and cannons, Kamehameha I, or Kamehameha the Great, went forth and in a 15-year-lasting conquest unified the Hawaiian Islands into the Kingdom of Hawaii. Uh, and this was the first time in history that the islands were unified into one cohesive political entity. And this is also the reason why they are called the Hawaiian Islands, because the archipelago did not have a unified native name before that. And Kamehameha named his kingdom after the place he himself was from, the Big Island, uh, also known as Hawaii. And now a bunch of things happened. Uh, as I said, the islands are volcanic in nature, which means they are mad fertile. Also, they have extremely good growing conditions, what with being in the tropics and all, and basically only having two seasons, which are great weather and slightly less great weather. So Europeans and American business interests quickly realized that they could make a ridiculous amount of money getting their hands on Hawaiian lands, which, well, they did over time. And in the meantime, British Lord Vancouver, um, yes, that that British Lord Vancouver, gave King Kamehameha four bulls and eight cows as a present in uh, 1793 and 1795. And uh, 
King Kamehameha liked his bovines so much, he put a kapu on them, making them essentially, well, sacred cows. And that became a, big of a, a bit of a problem, because these cows started to be, behave like they owned the place, bred pretty quickly and successfully, and, you know, just lorded over the Hawaiian countryside. They devastated crops, ate everything, including the houses of the people, because, you know, the houses are made of grass, and that's what cows eat. Um... And uh, the people couldn't do anything to stop them because, well, they were kapu. They were sacred. Um, so it almost took 40 years for the descendants of Kamehameha the Great, who uh, went by Kamehameha III, to lift the kapu off the cows uh, and to get some outside help from Mexican ranchers to rein the cattle in. Um, and we're going to talk about those guys a little more next week. Uh, next week, I'll talk about the Kingdom of Hawaii and the period of colonization and how the island nation became eventually the 50th state of this here hellscape of the united states stay tuned um for for that and that'll be on next week's the past inside the present the second part of sebastian's history of the hawaiian islands pretending to know what i'm talking about since 1996 this is hell will who are this week's upcoming guests here on this is hell Returning to This Is Hell, it's contributing writer at The Intercept, Nick Terse, who returns to <laughs> I This Is Hell. I gotta take that second <laughs> returns out of that script there, my friend. That's all right. I, uh, anyway, uh, to discuss his new investigation, Kissinger's Killing Fields, transcripts of Kissinger's call reveal his culpability. And then we have um, uh, new guests that are sub- suggested to us by Chris Busby at... Portland, Maine's alternative publication, The Bollard. Chris wrote to suggest that we have on the show Jennifer London, author of American Breakdown, Our Ailing Nation, My Body's Revolt, and the 19th century woman who brought me back to life. Yeah, it's all about uh, chronic fatigue syndrome. And after reading a book about chronic fatigue syndrome, which is exhausting. (laughs) Not that the book is exhausting, but reading about chronic fatigue syndrome is Uh exhausting. Uh, I'm pretty sure about the uh, what's that the like rest remedy sometime oh yeah I probably should basically lock a woman in a room for a few weeks if not ever like that's what to radically rest yeah didn't they do that with one of the Kennedys yeah locked her up forever yep yeah that was a good way for the culture to deal with sure women uh, being kind of publicly heard and seen yeah in 19th century almost every woman's disorder was just labeled as hysteria so the kind of health uh, care that they would get in the 19th century so William James sister Henry James sister Alice James, she had chronic fatigue syndrome and she wrote a diary about it. And that's how everybody is now learning about what chronic fatigue syndrome was like and what women's health care was like during the 19th century. But now I am absolutely certain that I have not only chronic fatigue syndrome, but hypochondria. Thanks to Will Ippen for producing. I am your bitter, blind, broke, gap radio show, podcast, live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. Like I said earlier, On top of the box of a hundred prints that say God's favorite favorite podcast, Prove Us Wrong, the kind letter and the amazing support we got from Kennedy Prince that I was discussing earlier. We also got a print in the mail that says AI on it in big capital letters. And then in small letters at the bottom it reads Analog Intelligence. On the back there's a handwritten note which states, Chuck, 
for the auction, get this, it's not for the auction, actually, it's for the raffle, Kennedy Prince will donate a one-year subscription to our 6 by 8 inch cards. The winner will get a card a month for 13 months. 13 months. The subscription is $120 US a year, if you need a price. Now we will need the winner's name and address. Mimi Machete still enjoys your podcast. Kennedy Prince. So thanks to everybody at Kennedy Prince and thanks to everybody for listening. Especially thanks to Mimi Machete. Welcome to America. This is hell. My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com.